1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. The Apostle Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The dictionary defines the word paradox as a statement or proposition that seems contradictory, but is in effect true. Some of you use the word paradox uh, sometimes. And and what you're saying is, is, boy, it doesn't seem like that would be right, that these two uh, statements are both reality when they seem to be at odds with one another. Let me give you a theological paradox. God is is sovereign in the salvation of men. But men are responsible to respond to God for salvation, right? So God is sovereign, but men are responsible. You say, well, which one is it? It can't be both. Yes, it can, all right, because the scriptures teach that. That's what we would call a paradox. And there are certain truths that are are more difficult for us to understand than others. And we, we could say, oh, I could see how that could be true, and I could see how this could be true at the same time. But what Peter teaches us this morning is a truth that I think we find very hard to to comprehend. And if you're a note taker, write this truth down because it really uh, is is governing our entire text. And it is this, the pathway to increasing joy is filled with pain. The pathway to increasing joy is filled with pain. You're like, what? That doesn't make sense. William Blake, who was a Christian poet, Uh, He had an excellent grasp of this reality. He once wrote the lines, Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine runs a joy with silken twine. It is right, should be so, man was made for joy and woe. And when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. Malcolm Muggeridge, I don't know if you guys remember him or not, he's an English journalist, author, media personality. He actually came to Christ late in life. But listen to what he said. I was just struck by the sobriety of of, uh, him looking back on his life and seeing joy and pain together. I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've ever learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. In other words, if it ever were to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by means of some drug or other medical mumbo-jumbo, the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it too banal and trivial to be endurable. And then Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed by Hitler right before the end of World War II. 
He said, should it be ours to drink the cup of grieving, even to the dregs of pain at thy command, we will not falter, thankfully receiving all that is given by thy loving hand. So the pathway to increasing joy is filled with pain. And I don't know anybody who doesn't want more joy. I mean, do you want more, more joy, Mark? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right, pour it on. Yeah, Mike, you want more joy, right? And what Peter would say is it's going to be filled with pain. If you want more joy, then you need to know that pain's coming. Because the way to joy is the way of pain. And so what I want to do this morning from our text is I want to give you four factors that contribute to increasing joy. Four factors that contribute to increasing joy. The first factor is the motive. The motive for joy. First of all, let's establish what a motive is. All right? Your motive is why you do the things that you do. Right? It's not that you just do something, but it's why you do that something. You know, there are plenty of parents in the world today who are feeding their kids and sending their kids off to school and then uh, bringing them home and, and feeding them and clothing them and taking care of them whose motive may not be the same motive that we do those things. Motive is crucial. And sometimes we don't see the motive, but God always sees the motive. All right? And so it's important for us to understand the motive. And, and uh, Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice. Let's tackle the word rejoice. All right? It means to exult, to leap for joy. All right, literally, it means to show joy by leaping and skipping along, showing excessive or ecstatic joy and delight. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, um, the, the Psalms really indicate this pretty clearly. It, it, for those of you who are not aware, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. All right, and in the Septuagint, this word that Peter uses for rejoice is used a number of times in the Psalms. And let me just share a couple of them with you because what it shows here in the Psalms is that there are people who are rejoicing with song and dance and celebration. Psalm 20, verse 5. We will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. The idea is that they're at the temple and, and the people of God are running around and they're, they're, they're setting up banners and rejoicing over all that God is and all that God does. Psalm 40, verse 16. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. So you have a people who are collectively getting up and standing up and rejoicing, exulting and dancing and singing before God. Psalm 68, verses 3 and 4, Let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds. So you get this picture of leaping for joy, having this ecstatic rejoicing in God. And the question is the motive. The motive. Now I want you to picture with me for a moment. I want you to picture with me that we're all in biology lab. All right, we're in biology lab, and it's 10 o'clock in the morning, and we're waiting for the professor to enter the room. And all of a sudden, the professor enters the room, and he's got a box in his hand, all right? And he sets the box down on the island right beside the Bunsen burners. 
all right? And he says, let's celebrate, guys. I want everybody up. Everybody up, all right? Let's get some high fives, some chest bumps, all right? Let's get around. Let's get it going, all right? Let's raise the roof a little bit. Let's, let's separate half the class over here, and the other half of the class get over here, all right? And so this class, I want you guys to sing, you know, we've got spirit. Yes, we do. We've got spirit. How about you? And over here, they, they sing the same thing, and then they start chanting, we've got more. We've got more. We've got more. And, and they're just celebrating, and the, the classroom is just going berserk, and all of a sudden, the, the intensity of the room decreases a little bit, and finally somebody looks at the professor and says, Prof, what are we rejoicing in? And he says, oh, we, we've got our frogs to dissect. They're ready for dissection. And everybody in the classroom looks at each other and says, this guy's lame. <laughs> I mean, we just did all of this celebration to dissect a frog. This is what I want to tell you guys. There are lame motivations to rejoice, and there are very legitimate ones. And you and I are so often prone to rejoice for lame reasons rather than legitimate ones. And what Peter is saying is you've got some very legitimate reasons to rejoice, and let me give them to you. It's what I just told you. He has said, you have a living hope, all right? Because of the resurrection of the dead, verses 3 through 5, right? He said, just as your Savior is not in the grave, just as your Savior is not dead, you are not in the grave and you are not dead. And even when you die, you won't be dead because just as He has ascended, you will ascend into heaven. You have a living hope. You will never die, as it were, eternally. And He, he, he says, not only do you have a, a, a living hope, but you've got a future. You've got an inheritance that is eternal. It is imperishable. It is indestructible. It is reserved in heaven for you. Hey, it's nothing that anyone can take away from you. God certainly won't. You can't. And even the forces of hell itself can't take away the eternal, imperishable, indestructible inheritance that you have with God in Jesus Christ. Yeah, and then he says, he says not only that, but you've got a secure salvation. You realize that... that uh, God has a reservation for you, and He has you for a reservation. And you've got a salvation. You, you've got a deliverance from sin and death and hell and bringing you over into righteousness and heaven and glory and holiness. And listen, it's not going to go away. You're, you're, you're as good as there. It's just like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He said He has raised you up into the heavens. There is a sense, David, there's a sense, Christy, when you're, that you're already in heaven. There's a sense in which your spirit is there. Your body just hasn't gotten there yet, right? And that's what Peter is saying. That's what we're to rejoice in. That's our motivation for rejoicing. So when he says, in this you greatly rejoice, in this you exult, you leap for joy, you're, you're ecstatic, you, you have um, excessive joy and delight, it's because of a living hope, an eternal inheritance, a secure salvation. That's your motive. And any other motive, is a lesser motive. It is a worldly motive. And so I guess I want to ask you this question this morning. What are you rejoicing in? What are you rejoicing in? I didn't ask, what do you know you're supposed to be rejoicing in? What are you really rejoicing in? Where do you get your joy? The most excited that you get. The most delighted that you get. The most pleasure that you feel in this life, what is it based on? What is the motivation behind it? 
And what Peter would say is, rejoice in the eternal security, in the living hope, in the inheritance that God has for you. Now the second factor that's involved in our joy is the struggle. The struggle. This is huge. Let's go ahead and read the passage there that we're getting this from. He says, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be grieved? He says, you're grieved. What does it mean to be grieved? It means to be sad. It means to be full of sorrow. I I actually defined grief as I was working through this this week. Grief is persistent emotional pain produced by trials. Persistent emotional pain produced by trials. Let me tell you, grief is what you feel. Trials are what you experience. Grief is what you feel. Trials are what you experience. When you have grief, you wish that your circumstances were different. Did a little word study on this word grieved this week. Matthew chapter 17, the disciples are grieved when Jesus tells them that he's going to be murdered. Why would the disciples feel grieved because of that? Well, because they'd come to love him. They'd come to worship him. They'd come to lean on him, to trust in him, to, to say, I... I don't know what my life would be like apart from you. Now you're telling me that you're going to be murdered, you're going to be executed. And and then immediately they're filled with this grief. They're filled with this persistent pain that comes over them. They're also grieved in Matthew 26 when Jesus tells them that one of them will betray him. And they all start asking the question, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Is it me? I'm not going to be the one that betrays you. And every one of them began to be grieved, the scripture says this persistent pain that they feel because of the possibility that they would be the ones to to betray him. In Matthew 26, also, Jesus is grieved in the garden as the hour of his betrayal is at hand and he begins to sweat drops of blood. Why is Jesus grieved? Because he's about to undergo the most difficult, traumatic experience that anyone has ever or will ever experience on our behalf. And then Peter was grieved when Jesus had to ask Peter a third time, Peter, do you love me? Do you really love me? Why would Peter be grieved by that question? The reason is, is he knows it's a legitimate question because Peter had proven that he had denied him and that he walked away from him and had even cursed at the mention of his name. So Peter knows what this grief is, just as the disciples did. Now, if you look down at your text... All right, it says, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. The word various literally means many colored, many colored. All right, so he's saying you've got trials that come in all different shapes and sizes and colors, right? And he's, he's including every kind of grief producing trial that a Christian may experience here. All right, if you're a Christian and you've experienced a trial, he's including you right here in this statement. If he were here today, I think that Peter would say something like this. He would say, have you ever experienced the rejection from another person that you really loved? Have you ever given yourself to somebody and served them and cared for them and what they did in return 
was to either ignore you or turn their back on you or even say bad things about you. Have you ever experienced that? Peter would say, then you've, been, you've experienced trials of various kinds. Peter would say, listen, have you ever felt the failure of a role or responsibility that's been entrusted to you? Have you ever experienced that? Peter would say, I have. Jesus gave me a role. He gave me a responsibility, and I failed miserably at it, and I was grieved by it. If you've ever felt that, then you've been grieved by various trials. Have you ever experienced the death of somebody that your heart was united to? Somebody, I'm not just talking about somebody you love, but somebody that was united to you. Have you felt what it was like to live in the days and the weeks and the months after they died and you had to pick up the pieces and go on? Peter would say, you know what it's like to be, to be having trials of various shapes and kinds. Have you ever experienced loneliness to the degree that you feel like nobody knows, nobody understands, and sometimes nobody even cares? Peter would say, you've experienced trials of various kinds. Peter would say, are you a Christian? And, and you've been ridiculed because of your faith in Jesus. You've, you've been excluded to some event. You've been purposefully not invited to some location or some celebration chiefly because you're a Christian. Peter would say, you know what it's like to experience suffering. You know what it's like to experience trials of various kinds. You ever experienced sickness to the degree that you're not just discouraged, but it feels like you're debilitated and you can't do what you want to do. You can't feel like you, you can glorify God the way he wants you to glorify him because you just don't feel like it. Peter would say, you've experienced trials of various kinds. And all of these are legitimate trials that cause grief that Peter wants us to deal with. He wants us, he wants us to say, you know what? I've got this going on in my life. I've got this grief. This trial seems to persist. I feel terrible about it. I don't feel motivated. I don't feel like I can go on. Peter would say, I've got a word for you today. And it's a struggle. All of life is struggle because you're experiencing all of these various trials. But Peter would say, this is the deal. The pathway to increasing joy is filled with pain. He said, I, I know about it. Listen, I, I walked with Jesus. I loved Jesus. I admired Jesus. I was his number one fan. And then all of a sudden, he dies. And my heart was filled with grief. And even before he died, I denied him. And my heart was filled with grief in denying him. And then when he meets me on by the shore and he begins to challenge me and ask me, do you love me? My heart was filled with grief because of what I had done. And then it was a reminder of that. And then once I get to, get to see him again after his resurrection, right when I'm getting used to him again, and we're bringing good fellowship, all of a sudden he ascends into heaven and I've not seen him yet again. I know what grief feels like. I know what it, it's like to live with a persistent grief. And you say, listen, but I am more joyous now than I've ever been because the way to increasing joy is the pathway of pain. And this is what I also think Peter would say right now. He would say, never doubt in the darkness what God has shown to you in the light. All right? And so, Leslie, I think about you going through your surgery this week, Lord willing, and, uh, you know, it's going to be rough for the next four, six, eight weeks. But don't doubt in darkness what God has revealed to you in the light. And trust Him in the darkness because He has revealed to you truth in the light. So, this is the deal. Peter gives us two encouraging uh, pieces of information here. You can look down at your text. The first one is this, that grief-producing trials are only for a little while. They're for a very short, brief time. 
This word little while, James uses it in chapter 4, where he says, what's your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. In Revelation chapter 12, it's actually used of Satan when Satan comes down and tries to hurry and win people to himself and to destroy people. And what does, what does the, Re- the Revelation writer John say? It's because he realizes that his time is short. It is but a little while. It's the exact same phrase that Peter uses right here. Listen, guys, if I were to draw a line, if I were to take my pen and draw a line from this point of the screen all the way over to this point of the screen... Just imagine, just like a, a blue line that goes from here to here. But then on, at the end of this line, we just drew an arrow that kind of proceeds out to infinity. What Peter is actually saying is that that's the entirety of your life, your entire life. And then this little dot is your life on earth. That's what he's saying, just for a little while. Last week, you guys remember me telling you a story about when I was a kid and falling into the ditch and it was a traumatic event. You guys remember that? I tried to give you details about that event, but, but I was like 11 and I'm like almost 38 now and I couldn't remember all the details. But it was a very traumatic, su- suffering kind of experience for me at that age, but now I can hardly remember it. What Peter would say is this, is that your trials that you're going through right now all right, for eternity, you know what they're going to feel like? An afternoon when you were a kid one time that you can barely remember the details. That's what your trials are right now. So they happen for a little while. This should be encouraging to you. And then the the other encouraging piece of information is that grief-producing trials have a beautiful outcome. A beautiful outcome. He says, the ultimate outcome of your trials are praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, these three words, you know, stacked on top of one another, I'm not so sure that that Peter's seeking to to make a real sharp distinction between the the three as he is merely saying it's going to be an awesome experience. Praise means applause, approval, commendation. Honor means admiration, dignity, respect. Glory is recognition due to splendor and brilliance. And, you know, really there are those who are asking, so is this praise, honor, and glory uh, that goes to Jesus Christ, or is this praise, honor, and glory that goes to you because of your genuine faith? And I think that there's a combination of both. You know, the primary praise, honor, and glory goes to Christ. But there is a sense in which you persevering through trials and your faith shows that it is more precious than gold that is heated up and then comes through that fiery furnace there's a sense in which that results in praise and honor and glory as well. Edmund Clowney, who is a, a Greek scholar, uh, says this about this passage. Listen, he says, God sends trials into our lives to strengthen our trust in Him so that our faith will not fail. Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence. They drive us to our Savior. The fires of affliction or persecution will not reduce our faith to ashes. Fire doesn't destroy gold. It only removes combustible impurities. Like a jeweler putting his most precious metal in the crucible, so God proves us in the furnace of trial and affliction. The genuineness of our faith shines from the fire to his praise. 
It's just an amazing thought, guys. When we're set in the crucible, when we're experiencing various kinds of trials, the fire is being heated up, just like gold. What happens is in gold, and it gets heated up, all the dross and the impurities just rise to the top so that you can see the beautiful gold that's remaining, right, that lasted through. That's the nature of your faith, all right? We go through the trials so that God can melt away all the dross, all the impurities, all the self-confidences, all the idolatries, all the things that we're placing trust and hope in that are apart from the Savior, and they go away, and what remains is the earnestness and the genuineness of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's more precious than gold. Listen, faith is more precious than gold because at the end of the day, when Jesus is revealed, gold will not result in praise and honor and glory of the Savior. Money will not result in praise and honor and glory of the Savior. Success will not result in praise and honor and glory of the Savior. There's only one thing that will. It is faith in the Savior that will result in the glory and honor and praise of the Savior. Now, Jamie and I have uh, faced a number of trials in our 16 years together. And uh, some of you know about our trials, and some of you don't know about our trials, and every one of you don't know about all of them. But even in the midst of the trials that we have experienced, we have maintained faith in Jesus. Even when, even when it was hard, even when it was difficult, even when we haven't been able to see exactly why or how God is going to work all things out for good, we have maintained a faith in Jesus. And the question is, why? Well, there's a multi-layered answer to that. But the first reason why is that we know that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And so... To turn away from him would be foolish. The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Right? The, the second reason is that we believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior. And so for us to turn away from him, we would be turning away from joy. We would be turning away from deliverance. What we would be saying is, please destroy us. And then we also, we have a deep desire to see God glorified. And for us to turn away from Jesus would be to steal glory from God, to steal glory from Jesus Christ. And we don't want to do that either. I think we need to be thinking about those things when we think about what our faith is intended to do. Our faith is intended to bring glory to God. I want to give you a definition of faith. It's not the the final end-all, be-all definition. But faith is fully trusting in the promises, provisions, and providences of God. It is fully trusting in the promises, provisions, and providences of God. And what do I mean by that? Listen, when God says that I love you, when He says I'm preparing a place for you, you believe it. When God says um, Jesus Christ is your righteousness, the Holy Spirit is put inside of you, and the Scriptures are sufficient for a life of godliness, and glory unto me, then I believe it. When we look at our lives and we, and we see the, the various trials that we're experiencing and we don't see the, the light at the end of the tunnel, what we're saying is, God, I fully trust in the providences of my life that you intend them for my good and your glory, and I'm going to believe and trust in that. John Piper has made a great quote in his book, Desiring God. It's a book that changed my life back when I was about 24 years old. 
Listen to what he says about trials and joy. The Calvary road with Jesus is not a joyless road. It is a painful one, but it is a profoundly happy one. When we choose the fleeting pleasures of comfort and security over the sacrifices and sufferings of missions and evangelism and ministry and love, we choose against joy. We choose against joy. We reject the spring whose waters never fail. The happiest people in the world are the people who experience the mystery of Christ in them, the hope of glory. I hope you get that. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Probably is one page over for you. Peter is talking about uh, how Christians should serve for the glory of God. And so in verse 10, he says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as, God, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The manifold grace of God. That word manifold is the exact same Greek word as various in verse 6. Though you have been grieved by various trials, manifold trials... All right. Though you have been grieved by manifold trials, it's the word that means multicolored. All right. If you read ancient Greek texts, what you see is that that word was used to describe the skin of a leopard. That, used, that word was used to describe a robe that had, uh, that had been embroidered with various colors. That, that word was used to, to describe a marble that had different veinings of, uh, with different colors. And Peter used it to describe the grace of God. This is what I want to say to you guys this morning. Though you are experiencing trials of various kinds, of all different shapes and colors and sizes, God has a grace that matches your trial. All right. So in other words, Robbie, when you come to, when you come to God and you say, but God, I've got this significant trial and I don't know if I can... I can uh, last under the weight of its pressure you know what god says wait a minute robbie i got a color for that i've got a color for that he comes back and says here you go you can you can deal with this until your faith produces praise and honor and glory at the revelation of jesus christ there is nothing that your trial there's nothing that you have to experience by way of trial that god's grace doesn't match and so that should give us great confidence as we struggle for joy in the christian life for every struggle, there is sufficient grace that brings about. Let's look at the third. Let's look at the third element, the third um, factor for increasing joy. Whom having not seen, you love. And though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I got a question for you, Matt. How many people on this planet that you've never seen before, do you really love with a great deal of love? Yeah, don't answer that. Yes. <laughs> because the, the genuine answer probably is not too many. I can't really think of too many people that I've never seen that I really love. I mean, with a deep, heartfelt kind of love. And yet Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you don't even see him now, you believe in him 
with, with a faith that is ultimately going to result with, with, with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Why is it that we love Jesus? And why is it that we believe in Jesus even though we've never seen him? Even though we've never even laid eyes on him? Well, I can tell you why. Every major religion in the world has a prophet that comes and points people to God above. But Jesus says, I am God, and I'm coming to you to tell you and show you how much I love you. All right? Jesus is a God who is not only sovereign over me, but he has come to me. He has bled as me. He has died for me. And he is resurrected to bring me with himself. I can say with Charles Spurgeon, I have nothing else to rely upon but the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived, died, was buried, rose again, went to heaven, and still lives and, and pleads for sinners at the right hand of God. And I'm a sinner, and he's living and pleading for me. Why do we love Jesus? Why do we believe in him? Why do we rejoice in Him with a joy that we can't even sometimes fully express when we sing in a few minutes? Why is it that our heart beats and we want to utter words, but we don't even know what those words are? But whatever it is, it would be glorious. It would be wonderful. It would be awesome. I just can't think of what they would be. Why is that? It's because of who Jesus is. Listen, I've made a list here. All right? Jesus is the last Adam. In the first Adam, we have death. In the last Adam, we have life. He is our advocate. When we sin, we're not cast out of heaven. Why? Because He is at the right hand of the Father, pleading our case before the Father, mediating on our behalf. He's the bread of life. That anyone who comes to Him shall never hunger or thirst. He's the express image of God, such that when we look at Jesus, we are looking at the very face of God Himself. He is a friend of sinners. We are sinners. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the light of the world. And without Him, the world would still be under the domain of darkness and have no hope and no light at the end of that tunnel. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the only one who is worthy to open up the scrolls in heaven and to be able to read those scrolls and then exercise authority as to what the will and the purpose and the majesty and the kingdom of God is going to look like. He is the great high priest who passes through the heavens and lives to make intercession for us. And Redeemer Church, let's think about this. He is our Redeemer. He has bought us out of the slave market of sin. And He has brought us into the family with God. And now we can be called sons and daughters of the Most High. Why? Because of Jesus. He is our shepherd. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil. Because His rod and His staff are with us. And, they, and they, He leads us and guides us. Not to mention that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father except through Him. So when Peter says, when he says, even though we haven't seen Him, we love Him. And though we don't see Him now, we rejoice in Him. These are the reasons why, church. That's why we love Him. That's why we believe in Him. And that's why He's the focus of our joy. If you and I are receiving joy in all kinds of ways, apart from primary joy in Jesus, all of those other joys are illegitimate, lame reasons to rejoice. Yeah. Finally, let's look at the finish line in verse 9. He says, you're receiving the end of your faith, the salvation 
of your souls. I remember reading in John MacArthur's book on leadership. That's the title of the book, book on leadership. And toward the end, as I recall, he was recounting a, a relay race that he was a part of. He, he ran relay. He ran track in college. And he was a part of a four-man team that ran the mile. And as I recall, he said he, he was not necessarily, he was the least important guy. He was the second leg. But he said uh, this was the most important race of the entire season. And all of their arch rivals were there. And he said their number one guy uh, ran around and uh, was in first place when John MacArthur took the baton. And he said he ran the race of his life. He wasn't that fast, but he was able to maintain first place as he passed the baton to the third guy. Now, the fourth guy was the fastest guy at the track. All right, so they knew that if, he just, if the third guy just held pace or even fell back a little bit, it would be a done deal. And so as the number three guy was going around the first quarter portion of the lap, everything was going good. And then as he gets around to the other side, halfway through the race, they noticed that he slowed down. And then he walked. And then he stopped. And he walked into the center of the infield and sat down. And they got really worried. They thought he probably had had pulled a hamstring or something. So the other three guys ran out to him and said, What's wrong? What happened? What happened? As he was sitting there, he was adjusting his sock like this. And he just said, I don't know. I just didn't feel like running anymore. I just didn't feel like running anymore. Of course, John MacArthur goes on to say how carnal thoughts that he had uh, right, after, right after that. Just didn't feel like running anymore. They were that close to a championship. They were that close to victory. And he just didn't feel like running anymore. They could see victory. It was in their grasp. Well, this is what I think Peter would say to us. I think he would say, Redeemer Church, finish the race. Run all the way through. Don't stop. Don't look on the, your peripheral vision. Don't get too discouraged. Don't give up because there is a finish line. And you know what is at the finish line? The salvation of your souls. This is full glorification. This is you and I being conformed to the very image of Jesus. This is you, you and I taking on His holiness, taking on His righteousness, being in the very presence of God where we will say, Mike, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It will be a glorious moment. It will be an awesome moment. It will be a moment of reverence and, 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 and worship and, and respect. Vody Bauckham, who is a pastor out in Texas, has said that our vision must be shaped by the purpose for which we're created. Our vision must be shaped by the purpose for which we were created. And I just want to say this, church. The ultimate purpose of your life and of this church is praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's look toward the finish line. Let's run the race. And let's don't quit as trials come. Because even in the midst of trials, there will be increasing joy as we experience joy through the pain of becoming more like Jesus. Amen? All right, so let's just take about two minutes and make a, a couple of very specific applications here. Write your applications down in form of our four pillars. Worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. 
under worship, look not at what people have done to you, but what God has done for you. Look not at what people have done to you, but what God has done for you. Those things are different for everybody in this room. But I think that what happens when we experience trials is we begin to make a list of all the ways in which our life is bad and the way that people have positioned themselves against us. And I think the, the gist of our message today and our passage today would be, behold all of the glorious things that God both has done for you and is going to do for you in the future. Under fellowship, look around you. We are all people who experience trials. Share your trials with another brother or sister. Seek prayer. Seek help. Seek wisdom. And then ask your brother or sister how you can pray for them and how you can help them. If we were to literally look at one another right now in this building, guys, we would understand that every one of us has trials. Every one of us has struggles. And we need to look at to one another. Paul Tripp has said, we all need somebody to remind us that life is not defined by our pain, but by our union with Christ. So Adam, when you and I meet tomorrow, if we get to meet, and I share with you a struggle that I have, you need to be able to look at me and say, Ryan, I'm with you. I'm going to pray for you. But remember, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. He'll never let you go. There is an eternal inheritance. There is a secure salvation. There is a living hope. Never lose sight of that. Go all the way to the finish line. And then discipleship, this one's a little bit long. I, I was listening to a, a message this week where the pastor said that there are four common responses that religious people have to trials. Listen to what they, you can write these down. We judge God, we envy others, we pity ourselves, and we run to functional saviors. We judge God, we envy others, we pity ourselves, we run to functional saviors. And, and in discipleship, what we're committed to do is we're committed to proper gospel application. And instead of judging God, we should worship God and seek His grace for help in our time of need. Instead of envying others, we need to pursue others for wisdom, for help, for guidance. Instead of pitying ourselves, we need to look at others and exercise compassion on them. One of the reasons that our trials get worse and our grief gets deeper is because we then begin to look in the mirror all the time and never look out the window at the needs of the people who are around us. And then running to functional saviors, instead of idolatry, we need to pursue the Lord of glory and rejoice in Him. And then finally, under mission, just do what the four points of the sermon were. Rejoice in Christ. Embrace the struggle. Focus on Jesus, loving Him and believing Him. And then have your eye toward the finish line and finish the race well. For this is what's going to happen. Your family members and your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers are going to take notice of that. And what's going to happen is the fulfillment of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 is going to happen. What's going to happen is people are going to look at you and they're going to say, why is it that you have the hope that lies within you? How is it that you can live through trials? 
How is it that you can live through difficult circumstances? How can you live with a, with a terminal illness? How can you live with a disease? How can you live with a marriage like that? With a husband or wife like that? Or how can you live in those circumstances? Or can, how can you keep going to that job every day? And you can tell them. You can tell them because I have a living hope. I have an eternal inheritance. I have a secure salvation that's laid up for me in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you like to have that too? Y'all come up and lead us in praise.